So if you, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, uh, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. We have been in a sermon series for uh, a little over a month now, um, highlighting the major moments, the major themes of the book of Acts. And uh, I love the book of Acts for several different reasons, but one of the big reasons why I love the book of Acts is um, I'm a pastor of a local church, and the book of Acts, if you haven't figured this out yet, it is the story of the very first church. And, and it's a wonderful and, and, frankly, incredible story of the growth and multiplication of the local church. If you start in Acts chapter 1, you'll find that the very first church has 120 believers. That, that's, that's how many people made up the very first church. And then you go all the way to the end of Acts 28, and what you'll find is about two and a half decades have gone by between chapter 1 and chapter 28. 25 years, give or take a few. But what happens is in Acts 1, the church is 120 believers. You get to the end, and the gospel has spread, and the first church has multiplied into dozens and dozens, and probably more like hundreds and hundreds of local churches, so much so that the gospel has now spread to the whole entire known world in about 25 years. I'm pretty sure you and I cannot exaggerate the, the kind of spread and rapid spread that came in the early church. I mean, friends, they had no modern means of transportation. They had no, no trains to get on. They had boats, but I wouldn't get on one of those in those days because the Apostle Paul says, like, there's a few times I was out at sea, and, and one time I spent a whole entire night at sea. I don't know about you, nothing scares me more than going in the Puget Sound because I swear a whale will eat me. Anybody? I'm not going. I have a hard enough time in Lake Washington, friends. And, and so, so you, had, you got boats for transportation. You got no trains. You got no cars. You got no planes. The only way the gospel is going to get from here to there is if someone goes. And if a church is planted. And so we, we see this dramatic means of growth in the first century, in the first 25 years of the church. And so I love the book of Acts, not just because it is the word of God, but I read it with this lens of, Lord, what would you let the mission church have a piece of this story to? I don't know about you, but I read this and I just... I want this for the mission church. You ever read the book of Acts and the crazy stuff that happens and you're like, that would be awesome if that happened here. I need to set up a meeting with Zach and see what we can do about that. But, but really, the, you see this and, it, and so it, it not just tells the story of the church, but it paints this vision Hopefully that you and I will read and go, how can we as a local church pursue and move towards that? And one of the other things I love about the, the book of Acts is it doesn't just tell the good stories of the local church. It tells the bad stories of the local church. It tells the story of the guy who and gal who lied about what they gave and God killed them for that. Like that, 
It's not all the good stories here, friends. And, and one of the other things that I love is it points out the problems and the issues that the local church went through. And I'm not sure if you found this out or not, but we as a church from time to time, we have problems. We have issues that we have to walk through too. And so today I want to take you to, it was not the first issue that the local church had to deal with, but it was one of the first and one of the most significant issues, significant problems that the church had to deal with. And frankly, it's an issue and it's a problem that every single church has to deal with. And it's so significant, it's so huge that how this church and how the mission church deals with this problem, deals with this issue, dictates whether we're successful or not. It's, it's that huge. It's that significant, this issue. And so what is this issue that we see in Acts chapter 2? It, it's going to surprise you. You might not see it as a problem or an issue. But what happens is the church is about 120 people in size. And in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit, it says, is poured out on the believers. Peter gets up, and pretty much all of chapter 2 is Peter preaching the gospel to thousands of people. And some of them respond, and some of them get saved. Anybody remember how many people get saved? Bible trivia, anyone want to play? Okay, wow, that was that. When I do this, that's, that's when you give me the answer. Okay, let, let's see it. 3,000. A couple of nervous people said 3,000. Good. Hey, yeah. So literally, so put it this way. This will give us some perspective. Um, The Mission Church is about 200 people, give or take, that call the Mission Church their home. That includes um, the massive army of children we have back there that keep you up at night. So really, our church consists pretty close to exactly 120 adults that would call the Mission Church their home. I'm looking around. I'm guessing there's close to 100 here just in this room. So imagine this. You have a group about this size that's meeting together. They're the first church. Peter preaches the gospel, and they grow from 120 to 3,120. Now we read this and go, where's the issue? Where's where's the problem? Like, hasn't success just broken out? Here's, Here's the problem. Here's the issue that both the leadership and the church as a whole had to deal with is, what are we going to do as a church of no longer 120, but 3,120? See, most of us read this, and we ring the bell of celebration, and yes, we should, but we ring the bell of this is victory. They've crossed the line. But the reality is, this, this isn't success, what happens here. We, we read this and think it's success, but the reality is this is not success. It's a huge issue. It's a huge problem. What's the issue? What's the problem? Remember that famous passage in Matthew 28 where Jesus gathers the, the disciples? And, and okay, Bible trivia again. This one I'm throwing softballs because we do this at least once a month, friends. Okay? So Jesus looks at his disciples, probably others there too, and he says, Go therefore and make Man, I knew some of you were saved. That was good. That was really good. Go therefore and make what just happened in Acts 2. 3,000 people get saved are automatically, they're disciples. 
Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That happens, Acts 2. And then teach them, Peter, James, John, local church, teach them to obey what I've commanded them. We need to re- be reminded, friends, Jesus did not say, go therefore and make converts. We need to be reminded that the Apostle Paul, when he goes out on his missionary journey, and every time he preaches the gospel in a city, and all these people get saved, Paul doesn't pack up his bags and go, okay, time to go to the new city. We saw 1,000 people, or 5,000, or 4,000, or 200 people get saved there. Time to go. No, no, no. What does he do? He does not leave. Almost in every single case, he does not leave until the local church is set up. And set up to a degree of effectiveness that they are ready to make disciples. And so here is the massive issue problem that the local church has to deal with. We just saw 3,000 people get saved. Let's high five. Let's celebrate this. This is awesome. But guys, our success is not dictated or determined as a local church by how many people pray the prayer and raise their hand. Our success is dictated, according to God's word at least, according to what Jesus said at least, our success is a local church is, are we making disciples? That, that's the success as a local church. That, that, we, are, that we are called to walk faithfully in. And and I want us to be reminded of this mission, church, that our success is, and I battle this worse than you do, I promise. Our success is not dictated by how many seats we fill, but by God's grace, we would see them filled so people can hear the gospel. But it's, it's dictated by how many people in those seats are Walking as disciples of Christ. That, that's success for our church. That's success for the mission church. Are we disciples? And so I, I, I want to I just start and, and get very, very personal. So I'm just talking to you. This is, this is something you can wrestle in your heart. I'm not asking you to stand or raise your hand. But if you want to, that could be interesting too. But I, just, I, really, I really want you to answer this question. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you? I, I didn't ask, did you pray that prayer at summer camp? I, I, I didn't ask, hey, did you go to church the past six weeks or the past six years? Are you a disciple of Christ? Now, there's some of you rightly might raise your hand and go, well, can you define your terms? Like, you got the smart people in here like, well, what do you mean by disciple, Zach? It's actually a very legit question that I think it's worth defining our terms about. Well, what is a disciple? So the old adage is a disciple is a follower of Jesus. I like that. But here's where I have an issue with it. Judas did a pretty good job following Jesus, too. He was a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Didn't go well with him. I don't want that for you, Right? So, so I think it's worth going, here's a disciple. Someone who follows Jesus by applying the gospel to all of their life. 
Applying the good news of the gospel, the grace, the love, the forgiveness, the salvation, the fact that you have the Holy Spirit in you. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus by taking every aspect of their life and applying the gospel to it. In your marriage, are you walking in the gospel by loving your wife the way that Christ loved the church? That's what it means to live out the gospel. Are you, as a parent, walking in the gospel by loving, serving, and shepherding, not domineering your kids and leading them to discipleship? Are are you, in the workplace, walking in a way that is displaying the beauty of Christ or the beauty of yourself? So let me ask you this again. Are you a disciple of Christ? Because that that was the issue that they probably had to sit around and go, what are we going to do? How are we going to make disciples? And and one of the things they realized that I'm sure you realized is that, um, I want to be careful here, uh, but I think you'll know where I'm going here. the whole idea of once a disciple, always a disciple is not necessarily always true, right? At least I know that from high school. Yeah, I gave my life to Christ in, you know, when I was young. I wasn't a disciple of Christ in high school. And, and so there's something that they knew, like, okay, how do, how do we not only make disciples, but how do we keep people walking in being disciples? And so I want to take this question one step further for you. Not only am I asking, are you, like, are you a disciple of Christ? Are you following Christ? Are you taking the beauty and the wonder of the gospel that you have and you're applying it and living it out in every area of your life? Not only do I want you to wrestle with that question, but... What's your plan to keep that going? What's your plan to move in that direction? What's your plan when your kids absolutely drive you crazy and being a disciple of Christ doesn't always seem like a great idea, but whatever you want to call it might be the other way. That doesn't happen to me, of course. But what's our plan for it? So, so that's what they're wrestling with. Okay, okay, 123,120. How are we going to make disciples? And how are we going to continue to make disciples? And you know what the solution is? Now, you, you're going to think I'm, I'm just I'm taking the, the agenda I have and I'm just applying it to Scripture. I promise you I'm not. What's their solution? We would call them community groups. Some would call them small groups or Hip churches call them cadre groups. I'm just not ready for us to, to go there, guys. We're not that hip as a church to do cadre or pods. Um, but that's literally what happens. How, how are we going to make disciples of 3,120 people? Here's what we're going to do. Small groups, community groups. Now I'm, now I'm just speculating of why they did this. I think they did this for two reasons. Um, first of all, just... So, you know, I'm not making up stuff here. As you look in Acts 2, it talks about how they met in different houses. You read the Apostle Paul in Acts 20 as he's talking about the church in Ephesus. And he talks about how I went from house to house to house to house to house to house. Or you read Romans 16 and it talks about, well, the church that meets in this house and the church that meets in that house. And so I think, I'm just speculating They did this community group strategy, if you will, for disciple making for two reasons. One, it's kind of like all they knew. 
Jesus played this out a little bit. How, how many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve. We would assume so, but if you look at the Gospels, you'll find that, yes, he's got 12 disciples, but he talks about other people who are following him too. But Jesus seems to single out these 12 and go, okay, they're my small, they're my, they're my little small community group here. And then if you pay very careful attention, he takes three out of the 12 as kind of like this inner circle, if you will, Peter, James, and John. And so I think... Um, you got Peter, James, and John. You got the disciples going, okay, how are we going to do this? Well, let's, let's just do it the way Jesus did it, right? Let's just break them up into smaller groups and we'll do discipleship. We'll make disciples that way. And then I think the second reason why they did this is just purely logistical. Like, they don't have a large building to meet in. They don't have a high school they can go to. Now, you're going to find that they go to the synagogue And that doesn't last very long before they're thrown in prison, beaten. James ends up getting killed. And so they can go to the temple where they can gather 3,000, but you're going to get thrown in prison and beaten for it. Hey, maybe we should do this house church model. Maybe maybe we should do these community groups. And so here's where I want to spend the rest of my time. Um, Is in Acts 2, it it doesn't talk about what they did, excuse me, they didn't, it doesn't talk about like how they did, okay, here's how we're going to do it, house to house to house to house, but what it talks about is what they did. And what I want us to see here is, is what made the local church so successful, what made the local church so successful in making disciples was, yes, they had these community groups, these small groups, but really what made them successful is what was going on in these small little community groups. What they were doing, they, they didn't just get together and watch the Seahawks, though we've done that before, and, and, and that, that was fun, that was great, and, and maybe we'll do it from time to time, but, but it's not as if it was this guy's get-together, let's watch the game, let's watch the Super Bowl, let's, let's do this, let's do that, and, and I think that there is a time and a place for that, but there was a specific strategic agenda, and we don't just see it in Acts 2, we see it through the whole of the book of Acts, and then if we had time, which we don't, I could take you to the different passages in Romans or um, in Ephesians, in Galatians, all these different passages where we see what was happening in these groups that gathered together. And so here's my aim for us this morning. I want us to observe the four things the early church did. And I want it to hopefully be a vision for you and I to walk in. And, and when I say you and I, I'm not just talking about community group leaders. This is, this is not just a community group leader you know, training of sorts. Here's the one thing I've realized. is Having a great leader is good and all, but what creates culture is when all the people in the group says, I'm in. Let's, let's, let's do it. And so my hope is that you would read this as someone who attends a community group and go, I'm going to walk in that. I'm going to pursue to walk in that. And then I want to take this a step further and apply it to a context that is not applied here, but I, but I think that it could be, is what if we not only did these four things in the context of our community group, 
but I'm, I'm going to single out husbands here. Husbands, if you took these four things and applied it to your little tiny community group at home, maybe it's just, maybe it's just your wife, maybe it's your wife and a couple of kids, but what would happen if you took these four things and this was the vision for your home? Because I, I just want to remind us here, friends, um, especially parents. Parents, you're not raising children. That's not biblical. It is not biblical that you're raising children. You're raising disciples. Ephesians 6, raise them in the Lord. And some of you, you might not have kids. Get a running head start here. So let's look at these four things. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on them, but let's look at them. Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves. So if you look at the Greek here, this word devoted, the tense is that they continually devoted. That this was not a one-time thing. This was not, hey, let's do this for the next year and then reevaluate. No, no, no. This was, let's give our lives to these four things. They devoted themselves first, here's the first thing, to the apostles' teaching. And so... We need to be reminded, they don't have the New Testament scriptures. They, they, they don't have the book of 1 Peter. But you know what they got? Peter. It's pretty good, right? They're probably laughing at us. Oh, you got the first letter of 1 Peter. We got Peter. And, and they didn't have the apostle, they didn't have the letters to the apostle Paul. But they're going to have Paul. Paul's not quite here yet. And so what would happen is they don't have the New Testament scriptures. And so literally, probably what was going on is you have the apostles, the 12 disciples going from house to house, teaching these people the fullness of the gospel. Let's be reminded, they trusted in Christ. They know almost nothing. I mean, you probably know more doctrine than they do. And so you have the apostles going from house to house just laying before them, this is the gospel. It says the apostles' teaching, that word teaching is misleading. The word is actually doctrine. That they were coming to these small groups and going, let's lay before the foundational truths, the foundational doctrines of the gospel for us to walk in. Let's not just go to that book that was written by that recent author that was really, really good and just apply that. No, 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 no. Let's be reminded of the doctrines of the gospel. And so let me just make this very, very practical. Last year was the first year I did not um, lead a community group in the history of the Mission Church. I was so grateful for it. It was nice just to sit under the leadership of another. And Josh Hoover, who's leading um, one of the groups, I commend you to that group. The food is amazing. Not that you're going for the food. Not that you're going for the food, but you could argue that's um, one of the other ones going on here, one of the four. Um, but I'll never forget this. Josh looked at all of us the very first time we met, and he said, guys... I want, I, want, I, want you to, I want to commend you to bring this to our time together. And every time we'd sit down, the Bible's open, and we'd read the passage. And it was as if Josh was saying, okay this, is, okay, this is not just me leading us in a discussion. 
we need to put this before us. And so, friends, I want to give us a vision, not just for our community groups, but big time for our community groups. Um, and also for our Sunday morning here. This might get convicting, but that's okay. Um, and even for your home, have this before you. I would love to get up here and you have this on your lap. And, and you're underlining things because I promise you, I will never, ever, ever preach a message that is not out of this book. The day that it does, find the elders and say, it's time for us to find a new pastor because this will lead us and this will guide us, friends. And may we put this before us in our community groups. And friends, let me take this home with you. Put this before your children. Put this before your kids at a young age. Just make the statement, as a father, we are, we are going to let this guide our home. End of story. Let it guide us. And, and you'll find ways to apply it. So I didn't mean to make a side story here, but um, this, is, this is kind of gives you a picture. So every night... Uh, I put my older two down, and we're reading through the Bible, reading the story Bible. It's, it's really meant for adults, but I'm pretty impressed how much they're engaging with it. And so we're at the beginning, of course, um, of, of the Exodus, and you get the Israelite people going out, and, and all of a sudden, we, they start saying, okay, we want bread, and so God provides bread, and then they say, we want meat, and God provides meat, and the Israelites are constantly complaining, constantly complaining, and I'm trying to make it very clear of how much the Israelites are complaining so that my children will catch on here, and praise the Lord, my son was like, I don't, can you tell me why they wanted meat? And can you describe this, why they wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt? And so I talked them through like how ridiculous it was for the Israelites over and over and over. You lose track how many times they just start whining and complaining. We want bread. We want meat. Let's just go back to Egypt and be slaves. And, 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 and so they thought that was hilarious. Of course, I was acting it out and, and giving them whining voices. And so yesterday, we're at a soccer game, and, and I go over to my daughter, Zoe, and um, she's whining and complaining because she wants grapes, and it's not halftime yet. I mean, the first world problems we have here, friends. And, and so she's crying and whining and complaining, and I say to her, remember what we read? Who, who whines and who complains? She said, you know, she's just turned four. The Israelites. I said, exactly. Are we the Israelites? No. I said, okay, then stop whining. Stop complaining. She stopped whining, stopped complaining, and praise the Lord, scored two goals to the glory of God. And I think that's why I wanted to share that story. Um, but that we would, that this would be put before our groups. And this would be put before our homes. I give you a vision for this. And here's just a practical step. Just take this to your community group. Just take it. And here's what you'll find. When you open it in other places, you will find that it will lead you to opening it more in your home. So it says they gave, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then here's the next one. And the fellowship. 
Now, you need to circle this one. Um, I, I think there's a difference in our culture here where we can lose the significance of this. Um, I, I think that the way that we define fellowship, I think, this is just my opinion, you could um, rebuttal with me here, but the way that we view fellowship is an exchange. Namely, an exchange of our time spent. Okay, we'll go to your house or you can come to our house. Let's spend some time together. That's, that's fellowship, an exchange of time. And then it's an exchange of conversation. We define that as fellowship, is coming together, exchanging time together, and then exchanging the conversation of, oh, I'm doing well, or how about, how are you doing? Tell me what's new in life. Tell me what you're going to be doing next week, or tell me the favorite, the thing you're most excited about in the fall, or things of that nature. That, like, that's our version of fellowship. That was not the version of their fellowship. It was not an exchange of time. It was not an exchange of conversation. It was literally the exchange of their lives. Look, um, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, wants us to see this very clearly. And so we see it in a couple of different places. The first place we see it is in verse 44. He says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So this is a picture of the kind of fellowship that they had. Okay, you have a need, you have a need. Okay, I'm literally going to sell that over there. I'm going to sell that property or that toy or whatever it is. Okay, you have a need. All right. All right, here you go. If you look at Acts chapter 4, we get a similar picture, but Luke puts it this way. He says in chapter 4, verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of their things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. It's a picture of their fellowship. Now, I get that, that, that we kind of get nervous when we think about, oh, I'm, should I give them money? Should I not give them money? I, I, I don't want us to, to take it there because, let's be real, we, we do, we just live in an affluent area. Some of you do have legitimate financial needs. We want to know as a church how we can meet those. But the reality is a lot of us, we just don't. A lot of us are trying to figure out what we're going to do with our extra. And so I, I want to I take it even down where it says they shared their lives with one another. Some of you have some very deep issues in your life, whether it's pornography, your marriage is absolutely on the rocks, you're, you're struggling with, with something that no one knows about but you. And the picture here is they were one of heart and one of soul. That you and I are called to come together with our brothers and sisters in Christ and go, hey, I want to let you know that this is broken here and I need you. Like, I, I need you in my life. I need that kind of fellowship. And so I want to commend you in your groups. I want to commend you in your community groups 
to have the freedom and to have the vulnerability to look at your brothers or sisters in Christ. And, and for some of you men, maybe it's just your brothers. In fact, I would encourage you, it's just your brothers in your group and some ladies and maybe it's just your sisters in that group. But that you look to one another and go, I'm struggling here and I can't break it. I need you. I desperately need you. That, that was the kind of fellowship they had with one another. I mean, how, do you want that? I mean, that's, that, that's what makes disciples. And, and listen, you may be in a season where you don't need it. Like you, you don't need it. You're in a season where you're walking with the Lord and, and you're not struggling with this or you're not struggling with that. You don't need it. But listen, friend, I promise you someone in your group does. I've just found the longer I've been a pastor, the more problems I see that you and I have. How many of the people in the mission church, they're walking through, there are some of you, you're walking through some major landmines and you're going to get blown up if you don't find community. And, And here's, when you look around, here's what you see. For the most part. You see a bunch of 20-somethings and 30-somethings. And how grateful to God I am for you 40, 50, 60-somethings out here too. But here's just what I found. The problem, you can live with some major problems in your marriage all the way into your 40s. And I came from a church that was the case where they had a lot of young people and then they started getting these people in their 40s and and marriages just start blowing up left and right and the pastor sits down with them and begins to realize that they've been struggling with this for 15 years. They didn't tell anybody. And so there's some of you in your marriage where things are going just well enough and you can make it five years, you can make it 10 years, and then it's going to absolutely blow up. And I'm begging you to look to the people in your group and just say, we need you. We, we, We need you. May we not wait 10, 15 years for things to blow up in our lives. May we look to the people around us and go, I need you. And that's what we see in the early churches, this kind of fellowship. And then the third thing is it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. This is almost certainly speaking of the Lord's table. It's speaking of communion. The, The breaking of bread is probably referring to them gathering together and taking communion. But I... I want us to think in in bigger and broader terms than that. It's not simply that they got together and said, hey, let's, you know, read this passage of Scripture and take this and take that. Here's what they were doing. They were remembering what Christ had done for them. That these were groups that were breaking bread together. They were taking communion together for the sake of of remembering the gospel and what Christ has done through the gospel for them. And I want to commend our community groups, every single one of them, to be centered on the gospel, to be centered on remembering what Christ has done. 
we had a community group leaders training back in August, and we had pretty much all the community group leaders there. And what we talked through is how do we help our groups apply the gospel to all of their lives? How do we keep, take our community groups, and instead of them talking about, okay, I've got a problem with pornography, well, here's what you do. You should you know, go and, and put this kind of software on your computer, or, oh, we're struggling with our marriage, so here's what you need to do. You probably need to see a counselor, or maybe you should read this book. And so often, what we run to is not gospel-centered solutions, but rather what we run to is simply treating the symptom rather than, than the root of the problem. Treating the fruit rather than the root. And so, yes, you probably should read that book on marriage. And yes, it would be a great idea for you to put that software on your computer. But you know what you need more than anything? You need to be reminded of the gospel. The reason why you're looking at those things, the reason why your marriage is an absolute wreck is not because you can't do all the right things. It's because your heart is not believing and walking in the gospel. Like when you go to the gospel and remember what Christ has done for you, you're going to go to your wife and you're going to love her differently. And so I want to commend your community groups and I want to commend this to your home, dads, fathers, husbands. Commend this to your home that you would speak and talk about the gospel. That you would spend time every day talking about what Christ has done for you. When you discipline your children, we're going to have a whole message on this. We're going to do a family series. Uh, I think it's in October, November time. But we're going to talk about how do we apply the gospel to disciplining our kids. It's one of the best opportunities we have, by the way. But that we would be homes and that we would be community groups that remembers what Christ has done for us. Not just that good book you should read. And so here's the last one. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to remembering Christ. And then here it is. And the prayers. When you look throughout the book of Acts, they're constantly praying. They're constantly praying. Why? Because they believed what James wrote about in James 4.2. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you ask with the wrong motives. But remember that first part. James says, you do not have because you don't ask God. James is literally saying, and if you look through the rest of Scripture, you will find that they come together. They concur with one another. One of the things that you will find is that there are certain things God will only do if you pray. And if you don't pray, it's not happening. And I am one of those people who is big on the sovereignty of God. And yet those go together. And so one of the things they understood is, hey, God may not do this and God may not work this way unless we come together and pray. And so I commend you as a community group and husbands and fathers, I commend you as a home to, to give yourselves to prayer. To look around and say, we need to pray for one another. How, how can we do that? Give ourselves to prayer, believing that God's going to honor that. And then listen to how the passage concludes. 
It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And listen to this. And day by day, attending the temple together. That didn't last super long because they're going to get killed and imprisoned for it. And breaking bread in their homes... They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want to underline two things in that last verse. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Who are they having favor with? Who are all the people? It says they're having favor with all the people. Is it insiders or outsiders? When it says they're having favor with all the people, is it talking about how the church had favor with all the people in the church? Or is it talking about how the people in the church had favor with those outside of the church? Outside. There was something so attractive of what was going on in these groups that outsiders are looking in going, I want in. I want in. And all they were doing was just giving themselves to discipleship. All they were doing was giving themselves to growing and being disciples. And what was happening, just naturally out of it, is they were having opportunities to now make disciples themselves. Guys, I want to give you a vision of not just us being a church of being disciples, but us of having this vision of you being a disciple that goes and makes disciples. Maybe maybe take that a step further and get even more confusing is you be a disciple that makes disciples that makes disciples. Because that's literally what happened. That, that's why the church grew. It's not because they had this tremendous strategy for evangelism. Okay, here's what we're going to do. These days of the week, we're going to go preach the gospel. And then we're going to have some, some really big um, like Ferris wheel and you know, bouncy toys and all those things. And it will track a bunch of people. This is how we're going to get people saved. No, no, no. They just said, let's, let's just grow in the gospel ourselves. Let's just do discipleship ourselves. And what happened is you have people looking and going, I want that. And it says, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number. Day by day, those who are being saved. This is a promise for you and I. It's, it's something I need as a pastor. Is It says that God brought the growth, not them. That God brought the people through the doors, not you and I. You and I are simply just called to be faithful to walk in these things. And God says, I'll, I'll, bring, I'll bring the growth. And it says, day by day, those who are being saved. And I love this picture. Every single day, not only were people getting saved, but every single day, people in their house churches looked around and said, we got to make room. Like, we got to make room because all these people are getting saved. And so I want to commend you to be like the group that I am so grateful I came from. The group that I was in last year 
we sat around and Josh asked us in May, he said, what is our goal, guys? What is our goal as a group? And, and a couple of people in the group just pointed out, we need to grow. We want more people to come into this group. And, and, and by God's grace, enough people came into the group where we realized there's no, we, we just don't have room for more people. And then more people are coming to the Mission Church by the grace of God. Even in the summer months, people come to church. Crazy. And, and, and so, okay, we need more room. And so, by God's grace, I sat, you know, talked with Josh and we're like, okay, we need, to, we, need to, we need to launch. We need to start a brand new group. Guys, how awesome would it be if we created a culture within our community groups where we said, okay, let's fill these rooms with lost people that we know so they can see what discipleship looks like and allow God to bring the growth. But I commend us to these four things. And I want to ask you, are you walking in these? Are you, are you going to walk in these in your community group? Um, husbands, fathers, are you walking these, walking in these at home with your little community group too? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the vision that you give us in this text. Help us to walk in it. Help us to give ourselves to laying the word of God before us and devoting ourselves to the doctrines of the gospel. Help us to devote ourselves to the fellowship that we would give our lives to one another. Father, that we would also give our lives to remembering the gospel, to the breaking of bread, and that we would give our lives to prayer. Father, that our groups would be ones of making disciples that make disciples. And Father, that starts with us. We pray that you'd empower our leaders, our community group leaders to do it and lead us. But Lord, show us our part as attenders, that we would walk in these things in our groups and in our homes. Pray this in your name. Amen.